core has got several beautiful attributes. Things like love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are things that Paul uh, so lovingly named the fruit of the Spirit. And as well, of course, as the ninefold fruit of the Spirit, then there are the nine recognized gifts of the Holy Spirit also. But underpinning all of these things is one thing that is indispensable. Uh, This is where the ground that all of that fruit grows from. And I'm talking, of course, about the grace of God. And without the wonderful grace of God, then we would never have experienced anything of the fruit or the works of the Holy Spirit or the gifts of the Holy Spirit or anything at all from God at all. Grace is the foundation of all of it. But what is grace? Above and beyond us simply saying it's God's unmerited favor, which of course it is, what is it above and beyond that? How is grace manifested in the earth generally? And how is grace exhibited in our lives in particular? For example, whenever we think about grace, we should think about grace in, in two ways. Uh, we should consider grace in a general sense, and then we should think about grace in a specific sense. Bible scholars call this grace in a general sense. They call it common grace. John Calvin apparently was the uh, one who was uh, given the credit for that term, common grace. And whenever we think about specific grace, uh, we're talking about special grace. That's what theologians like to call that, special grace. And so when we think about grace, we think about it as common grace and as special grace. Now, whenever we think about common grace, I want us this morning to think about common grace in these terms uh, which will follow. First of all, think about it as God's providence, God's provision, God's providence in provision for all mankind. Of course, it's called common grace because it is common to all mankind. The whole of mankind experiences God's common grace, irregardless of race or creed or color or gender. God made creation for the benefit and blessing of all mankind. And John 1 and Hebrews 1, it tells us that Christ upholds it by the word of His power. And all of this gracious provision is exhibited in ways Uh, For example, in times and seasons and harvests and and sowing times, all of this, all of this wonderful provision and all the blessings and talents and gifts of creativity is put within every human being. All of that is for our benefit and it's all, all of us benefit from it and it's simply called common grace. Now, in Genesis 8, 22, which you don't need to turn to, let me quote it for me. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, heat and cold, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. So in other words, God's providential provision for the whole world shall not cease. 
By the way, that's one of the reasons why I'm not hooked up and tied into all of this global warming massive scare that's going on in the world today. You know, people say, well, there's going to come a time, it'll be this and it'll be that. And the other. Well, the Bible tells us clearly uh, that it'll always be, as long as the earth remains, there's always going to be seed time and harvest time, cold and heat, summer and winter, uh, all of these things. It's just going to be that way. And then Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, He said that He makes the sun to shine on the evil and on the good, and He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So what that is simply saying that God's providential care, His common grace is overarching to every human being and every creature upon the face of the earth. Psalm 145, 16 says, You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. And so whenever we speak of common grace, we're thinking of God's benefits, God's blessings, God's provision to all mankind everywhere uh, through natural means uh, and through man's natural God-given gifts and talents and abilities to make this a better world. All of that is, and more, is common grace. That's God's provision, God's providence. Secondly, another way that this is manifested throughout the earth is what I call God's protection. Now, let me explain what I mean by saying God's protection. We, we live in a fallen uh, world. It's sinful, it's evil, it's wicked. Many bad things happen in a fallen world. Sin corrupts, injustice abounds, violence increases. All of these we're very much aware of day and daily. we just got to look at our television screens or lift our daily newspaper. However, if it was not for the restraining power of God in the world, it would have self-destructed years ago. We would have long since fallen into the abyss. But God has given mankind a protection to use that word again, albeit an imperfect one because of our fallen state. Now, this protection is called government. Government. Last week, we had an election in our nation, and just over half of you voted for government. Just over half of you voted for something that God has set up in this world as a protection method to keep chaos and anarchy out of our communities and out of our nation. So if you didn't vote, you missed a great opportunity to be involved in God's order in this world. The purpose of government is to provide a climate of peace and of harmony, and of safety within a nation or a community. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 4, the Apostle Paul, writing to Pastor Timothy, said, Therefore I exhort you, exhort you first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority." 
that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. That's the point of it. That's the purpose of it. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires that all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now understand here that Paul's writing in the context of living under a totalitarian government that was brutal, that was powerful, that quenched all dissent, and they didn't have a vote. And yet Paul said, we are to pray even for such a government, and we're to pray so that there is some peace in the nation. Why? So that the gospel can have free course, because ultimately that was Paul was aiming for. Now, isn't it interesting that God chose to send His Son to earth at a time when it was run by a totalitarian government, Rome? that then ruled the then known world. And at the time that God sent His Son, and at the time Paul's speaking to, there was what was called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And it was a peace. It was an enforced peace, but it was a peace nonetheless. And as long as you didn't uprise against Rome, by and large, they let you get on with your lives. And in that time, because Rome was had rule over the then-known world, and they were able to build tremendous roads because they were great road builders, and they built viaducts and aqueducts and fantastic roads and structures and opened up sea lanes and all the rest of it. And because of that, then when Christ came, and particularly when the church was born, and then when evangelism began to happen and the missionary endeavors began to happen, they were able to go forth into all of those nations that was conquered by Rome and they had a, a Roman Pax Romana, a Roman peace. So they, they had free course, by and large, to do that. Now, there was periods of persecution we talked about the other week. But by and large, they had free course. Now, again, it's not an ideal thing because we live in a fallen world. And we see a lot of corruption with even and then politics. But take all of that away. You'd have complete and utter anarchy if you had no rule and had no government and had no system of anything. In fact, the Apostle Paul was quite strong on this in Romans chapter 13, and always remembering the context he's writing this in. In Romans chapter 13, Paul said, Let every soul be subject to govern authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Well, these are tough scriptures. In fact, this is a whole message on its own, by the way, which I haven't time to unpack all of this this morning because it's not really our full subject, is it? For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, you don't find anywhere in the New Testament where Christians took up arms or made any demonstrations against the government. You just don't find it, do you? 
Sorry, am, am I speaking to myself this morning? Or is it? You don't find it. It's not there. Because the early church realized that whatever power was there, whatever government was there, it was appointed by God. Now, sometimes governments actually brought judgment in their nation. <laughs> Somebody said that sometimes a government is God's judgment on a nation. Somebody else says that countries often get the governments they deserve. Say, David, I thought we were talking about grace. Yes, we are. Therefore, whoever resists the authority, resists the ordinance of God. Those who resist will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil." Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but because of conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, that they are God's, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, It would be wonderful and it would be perfect and ideal if every government were a terror, uh, were not a terror to good works and were a blessing to good works. But that's not the case. But even if it isn't the case, Paul says don't resist the authority of the day because it is appointed by God. In the Old Testament, you see this very clearly, for instance. We will see will God will raise up a nation to judge another nation. And oftentimes, He raised up a nation to judge Israel. Having judged Israel, then that nation who was very cruel to Israel, He would judge them. So God appoints rulers, and He disposes rulers. And we see that happening before our very eyes, even in our generation. Now, I remember... What happened whenever Jesus was standing before Pilate? And Pilate said, Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you? In other words, I have the power of the sword. The power of the sword meant that those who were the governors, those who were the ruling, that oftentimes if they were high up the ladder, they had the ruling authority, they had the power of the sword. They, could, they, could, they had the power to put people to death. Remember what Jesus answered Pilate? He said, you would have no authority at all except it was given you from above. So this, this is a, this is a, this is a, a, a truth, and, and I don't have time to unpack all of that because that's not our subject this morning, but just to let you know that one of the ways of God's grace is that God allows and encourages governments so that the idea is, and because we're in a fallen world, it doesn't always work out this way, but the idea is so that we can live peaceably and that we can live without anarchy and that we can live in a democratic situation. That's the ideal part. 
so that the gospel, at the end of the day, can have free course. Sadly, Britain is getting far away from that, as we know. But nevertheless, ideally, that's what it would be. So, in a sense, this is God's protection, part of His common grace to man. And the final way I want to just mention in this this morning regarding common grace, another way that God has got to show this is what I call God's promptings. God's providence, God's protection, and God's promptings. Now, when I say God's promptings, because I'm talking to Christians and because I'm talking to spirit-filled believers who uh, would be very quickly thinking of being prompted by the Holy Spirit. And how often have you felt a prompting to say something, to do something, to be somewhere, to go somewhere, to whatever. You felt a, a leading, a prompting of the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about that here because this is common grace we're talking about. It was common to all men. All right, so when we're talking about prompting here, get the idea of coming to church and feeling a prompting of the Spirit because that's not common to all men. That's only believers. But promptings common to all men. What I mean by this is because God has made us in His image, He has put within every human being the ability to have a consciousness of right and wrong, of justice and injustice. And He's put within all of us this consciousness. We know instinctively that we are accountable creatures, that we're accountable one to the other, that we're accountable to government with all of its laws to keep chaos out, as we said a moment ago. We're accountable ultimately to God Himself. And one day we will answer to God, even at the very throne of God, at the bar of God. So instinctively, we know that we're accountable. Why? Because of our conscience. This mysterious thing we call conscience that God has put within every human being, that we know right from wrong. Now, of course, conscience can be spurned. And conscience, if we continually to not listen to conscience, then it can become seared, as the Bible says, as with a hot iron. So conscience is very, very important. And the Apostle Paul, writing in Acts 24, verse 16, said, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and toward man. Now, of course, there's people today you would feel have no conscience. And what we mean by that is that they have so dismissed their conscience on certain things that they're seared and they have no feeling anymore of that being wrong. And so their conscience is seared. So our conscience prompts us and God has put that within every human being as a prompt. It's a little sign, as a little thing to let us know if something's right or something's wrong. Now, of course, we as believers should have a greater conscience because we know from the Word of God what is right and what is wrong, as well as known instinctively. Now, 
That and much, much more, which we don't have time for, is common grace. God's providence, God's protection, God's promptings, conscience. But what about special grace? This is not common to all. This is only for those who have found faith in Jesus Christ. This is for the believer, and this is what we know as God's unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. And this was demonstrated to us through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And we're very, very familiar when we talk about special grace. And we realize how special that is because we have been the recipients of God's special grace. Now, the word grace is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, charis. And it's a beautiful word. It was a word that was an everyday common use in the Greek language. So it wasn't an unusual word. And originally, the word simply meant sweetness or attractiveness. Then later on, it became Broader than that, and it meant favor or goodwill or loving kindness. And that was particularly when it was shown from a superior to an inferior, from a master to a slave, from a king to his subjects. And whenever somebody, then the Greeks, whenever somebody gave a gift to somebody else with no thought of return, purely as a gift. They called it a charis. They were giving a charis. Now, this word is mentioned over and over and over and over again in the New Testament. In fact, it's mentioned 160 times in the New Testament. And 130 of all of those times, it means charis. It means a gift given with no thought of return. Now, Matthew in his gospel and Mark in his gospel never used it. John only used it four times. And Luke only used it eight times in his gospel and 16 times in the book of Acts. You know that Luke wrote the book of Acts. But it was the Apostle Paul. It was the Apostle Paul who gave it the biggest mention. In fact, Paul in his writings wrote about it over 100 times. Why do you suppose Paul mentioned it so many times? That's one of the questions, by the way, for Tuesday night. So you need to think about that because I'm not going to give you the answer now. All right? Why do you suppose that is? And so Paul was the one who took this ordinary but beautiful word that was an everyday use that had come to mean a gift given, a charis given with no thought of return, just out of the generosity of somebody's heart who lavishly displayed this gift and gave it to somebody else. Paul took that beautiful word and term, and he made it especially to describe what God has done for us through His Son on the cross, that God gave us His Son as a gift to us, unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor of God. 
just because he loves us and he lavished the sacrifice of his son upon us, can somebody say amen? That is charis, that is grace as we know it. And it's wonderful, isn't it? Now, let me to quickly add, excuse me, my nose is terrible itchy this morning. It is just driving me mad today. You say, David, you've got quite a big one too to drive you mad as well. Huh? <laughs> I should do a Paul James, shouldn't I? I should turn my back to the wall and blow it. Now, again, Bible scholars, because they like to use big words, don't they? Big words like marmalade and furniture. <laughs> they like to use big words. And whenever they talk about this special grace, this charis grace, one of the words they use is uh, prevenient. Prevenient. And by this they mean God taking the initiative. God taking the initiative. God making it a priority to take action on behalf of needy sinners like us. God anticipating in advance and God taking the initiative in advance and God offering this grace, something that would be preventative for us. It's prevenient. It's given before time, given before it happens. God giving us His wonderful grace so that we can be saved. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't merit it. There is of no conscious effort in our part whatsoever. Here's what John says, 1 John 4, verses 10 and 19. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Then in verse 19, we love Him because what? He first loved us. Prevenient grace. And this is why Paul says in Romans 8, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so Paul insists, Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, it is by grace that you're saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest no man should boast. So God took the initiative and God offers us His grace. Second word they like to use is and this is a big word, efficacious. Efficacious. E-F-F-I-C-A-C-I-O-U-S. Efficacious. And efficacious means grace which achieves the desired result. In other words, God wins us by the power of His grace. He set His grace upon us and He drew us to Himself. It's highly effective. It works. It's efficacious. 
It's wonderful. It's powerful. We would not be sitting here today if it was not for God's efficacious grace. And Jesus puts it this way in John 10, 27 and 28. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. That's highly effective, isn't it? That works, doesn't it? Philippians 1 and 6, this beautiful verse that Paul wrote, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that grace works? Do you believe that grace can keep you? Absolutely. So God's grace is prevenient, it's efficacious, and also it is sufficient. It is sufficient. And by this, what is meant is that grace is more than enough. It's more than enough for this life, and it is more than enough for the life hereafter. It is more than enough. It is sufficient. Therefore, He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him. Amen. Hebrews 7.25 And of course, we know that whenever the Apostle Paul, how that he prayed three times for that thorn to be removed, what did God say to him? My grace is sufficient for you, it is more than enough for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient. Do you believe in the sufficiency of God's grace? I do. I believe that it is more than enough. Much more than we could ever even need. And that's the wonderful thing about it. In fact, it is so wonderful, not only in this life, and it's so great, but here's what Paul said about it. In Ephesians 2 and 7, in his great prayer for the Ephesians, he said that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying, get it. God's grace is so wonderful, it's so vast, it's so deep, it's so wide that it's going to take the ages of eternity for it to be revealed to us in His kindness in Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? That God has got so much ahead for us that it's going to take all of eternity just to reveal His grace in Christ Jesus. No wonder it is sufficient. Glory to God. However, it would be entirely wrong of us to think of grace solely in terms of God's gift of salvation through Christ. And of course, that is wonderful and glorious beyond comprehension. 
but it's more than just God saving us and keeping us. What about here and now? Grace is for God to empower us. Grace is for God to enable us in the here and now. You see, we tend to think of grace often in negative terms. The grace of God saved me from that life I had. Then we tend to think in terms of future. The grace of God, I'll get to the glory one day. But what about the here and now? What about right now? How does grace work now? Grace is to enable us. It's to empower us every single day of our Christian life. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians 4 and 7, But to each of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now listen, grace was given to who? To us, he's writing to Christians, according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then further down in the same chapter, verse 11, here's what he said, and you're familiar with this. And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. Every single person who stands in one of the five-fold offices that's just mentioned there by Paul does so solely on the basis of grace. Every minister and every ministry and every gifting that's given to every believer is solely on the basis of God's grace. And Paul made that abundantly clear. You may even have natural abilities that God will be blessed to use, will bless to use, but it'll only be by God's grace. And so, whether you sit in a pew or whether you stand behind a pulpit, you do so by the grace of God. I could not do what I'm doing except by the grace of God. I could not do it in my strength. I would not have the ability to do it. It's done by the grace of God. And I am very, very conscious of that every time I step into this platform. Believe me, highly conscious of the grace of God. In the natural, I shouldn't be standing behind this pulpit. Who am I to stand behind the pulpit and to share the Word of God? What right would I have to do that? What ability would I have to do that? Only by the grace of God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But... By the grace of God, I am what I am. He could have said, by the grace of God, I'm no longer what I was. But by the grace of God, I now am what I am. And that's every testimony of every believer, isn't it? We're not what we used to be. By the grace of God, we are what we are by the grace of God. <laughs> and any blessing you have ever been to the body of Christ has only been by the grace of God. Any giftings that you've ever exhibited, it's only been by the grace of God. So none of us can boast. 
None of us can say, we'll be proud and say, well, look at me and look what I can do. And I'm a wonderful preacher. I'm a wonderful singer. I'm a great musician. I'm a great this, I'm a that. No, Paul nails that. He says, anything you got, it's the grace of God. And then he goes on, you see, and he says here, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Hmm, say that sounds a wee bit of pride coming in there. <laughs> it's a big statement, that, isn't it? Think about that. Think of all the apostles before him. And he says, I, I, I've labored more than all of them put together. It's a big statement, isn't it? But then he qualifies that. He said, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. <laughs> I think Paul would agree with Kenneth Wust who said, do this and live, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word God's grace does bring, it bids me fly and gives me wings. For those of you who thought Red Bull gives you wings, I'm sorry, it's grace that gives you wings. Amen. <laughs> it's the grace that God gives us wings. That's what keeps us flying for God, isn't it? Paul writes in Ephesians 1 and 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. It's inexhaustible that according to the riches of His grace. We talked about the sufficiency of His grace. 2 Corinthians 12 and 9. And John 1 16 talks about the addition of His grace and of His fullness. We have all received and grace for grace. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. The addition of grace. Then Peter talks about the multiplication of His grace. 2 Peter 1 and 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. It's as if the writers can hardly describe what they're trying to say here. This is, this is the arithmetic of grace, if you will. And then Peter again in 1 Peter 4 and 10 talks about His manifold grace. Good stewards of the manifold grace of God or the many-sided grace of God or the multifaceted grace of God. If you hold a, a, a beautiful cut diamond up to, the, up to the light, whatever way you turn it, you'll see it sparkle. All those different facets of its cut, it sparkles. And Peter says, that's the manifold grace of God. He talks about, in 1 Peter 1, 6, about manifold temptations. Many-sided temptations. How many times has temptations and trials come against us from all sides? And often you're hit up the blind side, aren't you? You don't even see it coming. But listen, for every temptation, for every manifold trial, there's manifold grace. 
For that trial, there's that grace. For that temptation, there's that grace. It's manifold. It's multiplied. It's additions. And even Peter, we're almost through here, but even Peter in 2 Peter 3.18, he talks about the environment of grace, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grow in grace. Sally and I, she got a little plant there last week and we decided one of those better days that we would dig a hole and bury it. And <laughs> but we couldn't decide just quite where yet. So we put it in a little pot meantime. And put that, what do you call that, peat. Shows you much I'm a king. Put all that nice stuff in and got it sitting pretty and that'll do for now till we figure out exactly where we're going to put it in the garden because, as you know, not all plants thrive and survive depending where they are put in the garden. Do you put it in the south side? Do you put it in the north side? Do you put it near a bigger bush where maybe the light wouldn't get it? Do you, what size is it going to grow? We'll have to check up with so many centimeters. Of course, the thing always grows 10 times bigger than the label says. You find that out. So where are you going to put it? So we're looking for the right environment for this little plant to nurture and to grow. And Peter says that the environment in which we as believers grow the best is grace. Is grace. And boy, we need bed it and root it in grace, don't we? Because the devil likes to come along and blast us and tell us we're finished and it's over and we're useless and we're hopeless and we're weak and we're this and we're that. And you know what? A lot of that would be true. and maybe is true. But we're going to thrive and we're going to grow and we're going to blossom and we're going to bloom because we're planted in God's grace. We're planted in God's grace. Amen. And then, f just to finish, that scripture, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And you know the difference between according to and out of his grace. If I was a very, very wealthy man and you came to me as a friend, and said, David, I am in trouble. I owe 5,000 pounds, and I haven't got a bean, and my house is on the line. Can you help me? And me being a very, very wealthy man, just say. I said, yes, of course, love to help you, my friend. Here's 500 pounds. All you need now is nine more people to be like me, and you've got it. And if I did that, I would be giving my friend out of my riches, but not according to my riches. But if he said to me, I need 5,000 pounds, and I says, yes, not a problem. Gladly help you. Here, there's a check for 5,000 pounds that will pay your debt. But, seeing you're out of work at the moment and you're really struggling, I would love to help you a little bit more. 
So here's another check. There's 50 grand. Put that in your account. That'll help you. Now I'm giving according to my riches. Aren't you glad that God in Christ just didn't give out of his riches? He gave according to his riches. He took the best that heaven had. The best. The greatest riches he had. His own son. And he gave them freely for you and for me on the cross. That's according to his riches. And then Paul said, if you've got a need, he says, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19. The wonder of God's grace. This is wonderful, isn't it? Close with this little poem. Amy, sorry, Annie Johnson Flint, many, many years ago, wrote this beautiful little poem. It's called, He Giveth More Grace. Some of you older ones would know it. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, He addeth His mercy. To multiply trials, His multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known to men. For out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you and we thank you for the wonder of your grace today. And here we stand and here we sit only by the grace of God. So, Lord, all we can say is thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for every mercy shown, every grace given. We are the recipients of the best that heaven could afford. And we are eternally grateful in Jesus' name. Ken's going to lead us.